Jack Miller made it back-to-back MotoGP wins in the wind, rain, sunshine and chaos of Le Mans, making it all seem like a very long time ago that his scruffy start to the season was putting his future with Ducati into doubt. As you've probably worked out already, this is not the voice of our usual podcast host, Toby Moody. Toby is unavailable this week, so filling the shoes of one of the great voices of MotoGP as a one-off, you have me, Glenn Freeman. Fortunately, I am joined by Simon Patterson and Val Harunji, whose job it will be to give this episode of the Race MotoGP podcast a sense of normality. And don't worry, Toby will be back for our next episode. Before we bring in Simon and Val, I wanted to quickly mention that you can watch all the action from MotoGP, Moto2 and Moto3 live and catch up on all the best bits with the new BT Sport monthly pass for just £25. This pass doesn't have a recurring contract, so you can cancel any time and you can stream races on any two devices simultaneously. If you sign up now, that means in the next 30 days, you'll be able to watch both the Grand Prix of Italy and Catalonia. To find out more, check out the link we've put in the description for this episode. But now let's start things off as Toby always does by asking Simon and Val for their main takeaways from the weekend. So Simon, you can go first as you sit there at the roadside in France in your van What's at the forefront of your mind as you reflect on Le Mans 2021? I absolutely hate flag-to-flag races. I despise them. They MotoGP is basically so good at the minute. It's so competitive and it's so close that it's just like add an extra drama for the sake of it. And I, I just don't see the need for it. We could have waited 10 minutes yesterday, started under wet conditions and had a nice normal wet race like we did slightly less than 12 months ago at Le Mans. And Danny, Danilo Petrucci might have won it again. Uh, Val, what about you? Uh, my first thought about the race is obviously it's a very good day for uh, for Ducati, but it's it's a great day, I think, for Yamaha and Fabio Quartararo because last year this is a race where they score like six points and this time he was on the podium. I think that's huge for his championship. Yeah, we'll come to Fabio and his, uh, his celebrations, I think, matched what you're describing there as well. Uh, I briefly wondered if they'd shown him the wrong pit board and he thought he'd... He'd won the race, but we'll get to Quattararo in a bit. We have to start with the race winner, Jack Miller. Those are back-to-back wins in very different circumstances. Firstly, in the baking sunshine of Jerez, and then in every weather condition imaginable at Le Mans. But in France, Jack kept his cool as well as anyone else did, recovered from a trip through the gravel shortly after the rain hit, and then a pit lane speeding penalty and came back from those two long laps to pass Quattararo for the lead and hold on to the finish. Val, given those back-to-back wins have come at two extreme ends of the spectrum, we could say, is this definitive proof that Miller on a factory Ducati is the real deal in this championship fight? I, I don't know. I mean, maybe. It's hard to be negative about somebody who's who scored back-to-back wins, and obviously this was a sort of job very well done. And it, I think that I think the 2022 question is certainly resolved at this point. But as far as the championship fight goes, the dry win was because Fabio's body failed, and the the wet win is if there's one thing we know about Jack Miller, these were primo Jack Miller conditions. He is basically with Mark, he is the best in the field. You can always count on him to deliver when the track is like this. So it wasn't. I don't think it proves anything maybe it proves that his confidence is all right and it, it, it's good that he was able to stay on the bike and obviously great ride nobody's taking away his natural talent for this sort of conditions and it's it's an important factor to consider when you sign him up that he's always good for something like this but most races won't be like this so we'll have to see how a normal race works out for him and i do want to pick up on that that speeding penalty simon because both miller and Ducati teammate Peko Bagnaia were done for that and the punishment was the two long lap penalties that we saw them both serve. So just quickly, is it coincidence that two guys riding the same red bikes made the same mistake? And do you actually think the penalty of two long laps is a fair one for that transgression? So I I don't know if the two, if it's something fundamentally weird about the Ducati, because I need to talk to some of the other teams to get an idea about how their pit lane limiter works. But the way that Peko described it to us last night, it sounds like their, their pit limiter kind of works the way the cruise control does in my van, where if you engage it at 50 when you're doing 60, it'll keep you doing 60. 
you have to break below the speed and then it stops you going back above it again. And uh, I think that's what he did because he, he said that he he switched on the pit limiter, he braked, but he braked too late before going back to what was then full throttle. So um, I don't know if that's something about just the way the the Ducati electronics is set up or what. I'll, I'll do some digging and see, but it seems like they both made the same mistake. Um, Regarding the long lap penalty, mm, so I think it's probably a fair penalty for what they did in the circumstances. My main issue with it is the fact that we've never seen a long lap penalty being given for pit lane speeding before. Um, you know, it's always, always, always been a financial fine as long as I remember. And it's, um, it's, it's yet another example of the MotoGP stewards just kind of inventing a penalty for a crime mid race that they've never used before and making it one that's completely unappealable. Has it, has it been, have the previous penalties also come in race though? Because obviously it, it makes sense for a practice pit lane speed infringement to to have a different penalty because it's not a competitive advantage necessarily whereas here it was a competitive advantage i think i think it makes perfect sense as a as a double long lap penalty because it is a a minor very very minor competitive advantage but it's you know you're breaking the rules in a way where you benefit a little bit so i think it makes perfect sense but i i i, I couldn't tell you about the the precedent particularly i don't know if we've had a pit lane speeding infraction well no we i would imagine we haven't actually in a race mm -hmm. because we haven't had uh, a flag to flag race since we've had the long lap loop so yeah. so it's it's the first time it's all happened at once um yeah it's it's a difficult one to call because you know, is it more or less of a penalty or more of a less than a gain than a jump start, which is also penalized by two long lap loops? Less. Yeah. So in theory, maybe it should only have been one lap through the loop. But, but it's more of a safety problem. So it sort of evens out. Yeah. You shouldn't speed in the pit lane. So yeah. It's, yeah, it's, it's, it's less clear cut than some of the, some of my strong opinions about the FIM stewards. Let's put it that way. <laughs> I suppose it depends. It depends how much you speed by, and we, we <laughs> saw on the footage, didn't we, that Jack didn't speed that much. You know, if you're driving through the pit lane or riding through the pit lane at 100 miles an hour, maybe you need 20 long laps. A bit like with a jump start as well. If you jump the start by half a second, Jorge Lorenzo in Texas, how, how big's your gain? If you if you realise you've jumped the start about 10 seconds early and you just gun it, then yeah, maybe yeah. I need to do something or a bit more. That amazing, that amazing Red Bull rookies jump start at uh, Hareth, <laughs> where he he was he was in the back row of the grid and was leading the race. By the time the rest of them were released, that's the amazing. way to do it. That's the way to do it. Yeah, just yeah. commit. But um, Simon, we didn't we didn't ask you about uh, about Jack. Um, were, how concerned were you when he made a bad start to the season? And how sure are you about him now he's won a couple of races? So I, I think at the start of the season, it was less concern about Jack as it was more just kind of disappointment because we we know that he deserves to be there. We know he deserves to be a factory Ducati rider. We know he has the speed. And it just, for whatever reason, it just didn't work at the start of the year. And he kind of sounded like he was making excuses, which, you know, oh, I can't get the tires to work here, but Peco can, Jorge Martin can, he's a rookie and he's doing it, so what's the problem, Jack? Uh, but it seems like he's on top of that now, and I, the thing is, Jack's big weakness has always been consistency. He's always been the guy that gets to the front of the race and then crashes. Um, and he's given us two races now where, fair enough, things kind of went his way to, make, to give him the win, but he was still there to pick up the pieces. He was still able to, you know, be running in second in Hareth when Fabio crashed. Whereas two seasons ago, Jack would have already have crashed. Sorry, whenever Fabio had his arm problem, two seasons ago, Jack would have already have crashed by then. Uh, having been like six seconds clear at the front. Because that's what Miller does. So um, it, it is actually starting to look like it's the full package now. And let's move on to former championship leader Johan Zarco who charged through to second at the end to stand on the podium at his home race but Simon how did Zarco view that race was he delighted to be on the podium in France or was there perhaps a, a tinge of disappointment or a nagging feeling that this is yet another chance to get that first win in the big class that slipped through his fingers I think he was quite happy about it he um he knows that 
you know, the, the kind of the goal for the year is to win races. It's not to win the championship because, frankly, that's quite unrealistic for a satellite rider. But he, it's almost like a, it's, it's quite similar to the, the mood that Aprilia are in where they know if they're close enough, often enough, someone will have arm pump in front of him or will make a stupid mistake or eventually it'll happen if they're just there, you know? The guy has now been, what, th three times out of five races he's been second? It's only going to take so many second places before the guy in first has a problem and uh, and he, he makes it. Um, and that'll be the happiest day of his life, the ultimate MotoGP redemption story. Pramac will be hungover for a week afterwards because that's how Pramac operate, the, that sort of team. <laughs> you know, it, it'll be amazing. Um, so, yeah, I... I and and the fact that he was on the podium at his home race in such a tricky race and wasn't the second Frenchman on the podium. I think all in all, it's fairly good, isn't it? For, for me, just, you know, it's just incredible that we have yet another race to add to the incredible collection of races that Pramac almost won. Uh, it's, just, it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's really, really remarkable. I think the, the most Pramac thing at this point would be for Zarco to go into win the championship without winning a single race. <laughs> not not my prediction necessarily but like i don't know <laughs> that that it, it would be wouldn't it yeah i would love to see that i'd love to see that i've been i've been a big zarko fan uh since he burst onto the scene with tech three but uh the other frenchman who was on the podium we mentioned him earlier was fabio quattararo who took the championship lead from banyaya with his third place ride and yeah simon as we mentioned earlier Febo looked absolutely delighted when he crossed the line throughout the slowing down lap when he got to Park Ferme. Why was he so happy to finish third? I, it's funny, I was listening to uh, another podcast last night about pro cycling on the way uh, out of the circuit and they were talking about Mark Cavendish, the, the great Tour de France cyclist who's also a rabid MotoGP fan uh, and about how he's so controlled during a sprint finish that then whenever he crosses the line, all of the emotion comes out at once. And I think th there's a lot of similarities to Fabio. And that's what we saw yesterday. He rode a very controlled race. He was very calm, very methodical. He kind of didn't take any risks. Uh, and then whenever he came across the line, he realized like, really the enormity of what he'd done. Because 12 months ago, Le Mans was a complete disaster for them. He's never been good in the rain. And all his time as a MotoGP rider, you know, you'd see like FP1, P1, FP2, P2, FP3 in the rain, P19. Like that's a normal wet weekend for him. So yeah, to it's no surprise he was so emotional after crossing the line because that's the sort of day that wins championships, not runaway race wins by 10 seconds. Yeah, I think it's, I think genuinely, it, it, Fabio was clearly very managed and very controlled after the rain came. But before the rain came, he was uh, chucking it into insane overtakes at turn three and passing two bikes in one corner. Uh, it was it was just really, really a good race. I would not have put him on the on the podium in the wets. Maybe you give me ten chances to pick a podium. I don't think he would have been in any of them. Uh, the Yamaha doesn't love these kinds of conditions, clearly. Just look at where, where Maverick was, where Valet was. Um, I think the important thing is what, what Maverick said when I asked him, why is it that it's Fabio who's you know managed to be so good in this kind of condition? And he said that the difference actually came in those brief few laps when the, the, the rains first arrived. And it wasn't anything to do with the bike. It was just that Fabio was, was braver than Maverick was, and that's what Maverick said. And I think if if it's if it's as simple as that, and it makes that big a difference, then wow, did Yamaha just land the absolute jackpot with this guy? He is he is fantastic, and I don't I genuinely don't know where they'd be without him right now. Yeah, the arm pump in Harris happened, but this is this is just an incredible way to bounce back, even if it's not the win. I I don't think the word I'd use is bravery. Um, I think the word I'd use is feeling. Because what we've seen from Maverick all the way through is that whenever things are perfect, he's almost unstoppable. He's got that Jorge Lorenzo thing to him. But when things aren't like yesterday, you know, he was he looked like he was on for one of those wins in the first first half of the race. And then things went a bit wrong and he just disappeared. Um, and I, I think, yeah, it's not that Fabio is braver than him. It's just that he, he has more feeling with the bike. And what about his what about his arm pump? We we know this was his first run since 
the surgery following Haref. Do we know that he's back to full fitness on that front or did the conditions this weekend mean this wasn't a true test of how successful that operation will have been? So we didn't get a huge amount of information from Yamaha after the arm pump surgery. But then on Thursday before the press conference, I arrived a little bit earlier and he was sort of, he turned up early and we had a bit of a chat and he was telling me about the operation and showing me. And it's not the traditional arm pump operation where they cut him open and slice open the lining of his arm. Instead, they they just made a little tiny incision at the top and went in and sort of opened up some blood vessels. Um, so he doesn't have the huge wound that Jack Miller had that he took so much pleasure in showing us uh, in Puerto Mal whenever he crashed and burst it open again. Thanks for that. Yeah, that was really appreciated. Um, so, so yeah, he literally has just a tiny, tiny little incision in his arm that um, is practically healed again. He hasn't got a plaster on it or anything. So as far as he's concerned, yeah, he is 100% at full fitness. Let's talk about the man who lost the championship lead this weekend, Peko Banyaya. Val, we've already mentioned the speeding penalty, but given where he started the race, buried in the field, and he did run around at the back in the early laps, is coming away from Le Mans with a fourth place and only one point off the championship lead actually a really good salvage job? Yeah, it's huge. I think it's much better than than he could have he could have hoped for coming into the race. I mean, it's never nice to to lose a championship lead, but on Saturday we watched Banyaya. Uh, struggle really badly in Q1 in conditions that weren't too dissimilar, I imagine. Uh, and I remember on his final lap in Q1, he was actively holding up rookie Luca Marini. That's that's how how not great it was. Clearly, he was not really a Q2 threat. His weekend, there were flashes of pace, I think, and in particular in the Sunday warm-up, it looked like something might have come together. But whenever in in this kind of mixed condition, it was him and Jack Miller on the track, you could you could tell who the who the real master of these conditions are and who who the other guy is. And Pekka was the other guy this weekend and yet s- came through so very well uh, with his with his tire choice in the second half of the race. Um, he'd take it any day of the week, this finish. I mean, yeah, came up maybe a lap or two short of picking up Fabio for third place, which would have kept the, the points lead. But I don't think that disturbed any of his sleep on Sunday. Uh, it, was, it was a really, really good result. And it's maybe... Not the kind of result that we would have seen him in, in past years. This is the kind of... Banya is refusing to have a bad weekend, steadfastly refusing to to struggle, which he so often did these past two years amid the, amid the good rounds. Now, before we get on to some of the people who probably aren't as happy with what they made of their weekends, I did want to quickly look at the race strategy. Uh, as we discussed earlier, flag-to-flag race, everybody came in for wets but then once it dried out or started to dry out we had dry weather bikes being re-prepared in the pit lane but we never quite got to the point where anyone decided to have a go and actually when you saw the helicopter shots with about what five or six laps to go maybe I was looking at that and thinking it's dry like surely someone somewhere is going to take a punt if you're down the back maybe have a go why, Simon, did nobody think to come in and grab slicks? Was it simply that it was impossible with the amount of laps remaining to make up the, the time you'd lose in the pit lane? I think the, the problem, plain and simple, is that Le Mans pit lane is so long. Uh, you enter before the last corner and you exit after turn one. Because turn one's so fast, the, the exit of pit lane is on the far side of it, so it's all the way up the hill under speed limit uh and i think it's just it's simply a case of you would lose so much time just riding along bah, 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 with the limiter hopefully on unlike the ducatis managed to do <laughs> that uh it's it just wasn't worth it in the closing stages there was a few people who thought about it i think zarko probably had a good think about it for a while miller admitted he briefly considered it but uh, yeah, they just they know that in Le Mans of all places, it's just not worth it. There are some places you could have had a crack at it easily, um, but that's not one of them. There's one guy who considered it and said he was absolutely going to do it, but then found himself on the ground. 
that guy is is Mark Marquez. Mark Marquez said he he was about to come into the pits and already signaled his crew that he was going to do so, and then he fell. I think Mark's probably the one who could have actually made something of it and maybe could have made it work just because Mark is electric on that low grip, uh, on, on wets, but also on slicks. On slicks and low grip, he's just unmatched. So it probably could have been a really fun subplot to the to final laps of the race. Don't know how much was possible because he was already 40 seconds off the lead, but just you never know. Didn't happen anyway, Phil. Which then raises the question of considering he said he crashed because his concentration had dropped, was he wondering about strategy whenever he should have been paying attention to the rear tire of the bike? Yeah, I think so. That's what he said about strategy, about his arm, interestingly enough. I I, I understand why he's like, uh, Mark's being harsh on himself, but I, I get it. There's a lot more to his current races than the current results. Although, if you know, had he actually not fallen the first time, had he won, then we'd start looking at the championship table a bit, sort of with one eyebrow raised. But after that fall, I think the race became more about just learning more about himself in this post-injury state and finding out more. Well, let's look at Mark in more detail, though, because I'm not sure if it's a question of fitness or maybe strength would be a better word to use. But in his scenario, the lower grip conditions and the reduced forces of riding in the wet seemed ideal for him. And there he was, sure enough, after the bike swaps, as we've seen so many times before, leading the race in mixed conditions but not only did he drop it from the lead he got back up started riding around miles quicker than everybody else and then fell off again as we've just explained the first question obviously simon is is mark okay he's fallen a few times now since he's come back but also should he be kicking himself that as unlikely as a win seems to him at this time of the season as and as unlikely it is that he has a championship to win this season was this a win that got away? Yeah, I think it probably was. Um, in terms of physical recovery, uh, we'll just touch on that first. He he is adamant now that the doctors have told him that the bone in his arm, if he crashes, there's as much chance of breaking the other arm. Uh, that the bone is fully recovered, fully healed, back to normal, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. The problem is just there's just not the muscle strength there because he hasn't been able to ride a motorbike, and he's still not allowed to ride a motorbike apart from his MotoGP bike uh, under strict doctor's orders, because let's be honest, it's Mark. Otherwise, we all know he'd be out riding a flat track bike every day of the week. Um, so yeah, th there was an opportunity for a win there because the conditions closed that advantage that the others have. And in terms of, you know, it became a race more about finesse than about uh, physicality. But I think what it showed as well, maybe, is that Mark's recovery isn't just a physical thing, it's a mental thing as well. There's still a process of getting the brain back to MotoGP speed, and maybe it's not quite there because Mark Marquez making a mistake and crashing because he lost concentration is not a Mark Marquez we're used to seeing, is it? Yeah, uh, I, I, I sort of agree, but at the same time, it also perfectly mirrors his very very race that injured him which was he crashed from the lead then he was miles faster than everybody else and then he crashed again and that's I mean, different conditions obviously but sort of a similar theme he was again he was miles faster than everybody coming through the pack he is if there's one thing this race definitely proved is that he hasn't lost any of his low grip sheer ability and after the race mark said that you know in that initial phase he could have dropped the pace very very substantially and not had that first crash and gone on to to win i think that's pretty obvious and i he should be kicking himself really you should be pretty upset but at the same time he can be happy that 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 bit of wizardry that's definitely not gone that's intact He'll, he'll win low grip races in the future, probably very near future. And and the fact that it was similar to that Hareth race shows that he hasn't lost any of the determination or the motivation or the, the passion as well. It's just that the other parts aren't there yet. you know. And it's ironic, that's the bit that people thought that he might lose more than anything else. People thought that he might come back more cautious or more careful. Yeah, right. Okay. He's fallen like 15 <laughs> times already since coming back. Like he's Feels that him. way. Yeah. <laughs> Well, that just goes to prove that, as as they were before, all the rest of his bones are still made of rubber. Um, <laughs> but in fairness to Mark, he he did look furious in the garage afterwards, and I, I'm pretty sure he only stormed out because there was a camera in his face. I think he was going to sit there and have a chat about it, and he just thought, no, I, I don't even want to be 
on camera right now. So, yeah, it's good to see that it matters that much to him still. And I, I think I think we all knew that really, didn't we? But there was another man who looked like he might benefit from the conditions, and that was Valentino Rossi, who started in the top ten and was go was making progress, but his race never quite recovered from what I think we can agree was one of the more bizarre incidents early in the race. Now, the TV pictures didn't quite capture this in great detail, although I'm still slightly haunted by that onboard shot from what turned out to be Franco Morbidelli's bike, where it just was diving to the inside, brake way too late. And I thought, well, hang on a minute, now he's aiming for inside of the curb. He's surely just going to skittle a bunch of riders here. Didn't quite happen, but we know that he ended up in the gravel. He fell and Rossi and Paul Spargro were caught up in it as well, but we never quite saw exactly what happened to them. So Val, talk us through as much as you can what actually went on here and perhaps what Rossi could have achieved if this incident hadn't ruined his race so early on. Uh, so they did show a, a decent replay a few minutes after the checkered flag that sort of shed a bit more light on what happened. And that replay prompted what I would describe as an editorial disagreement between me and Simon, not the first one, <laughs> not, the, not the last one, I suspect. Uh, Simon is adamant that uh, it was it was Paul's doing and that Paul probably deserved the penalty, and I, I can see where he's coming from. I'll, I'll let him outline that case in a, in a few moments. My case was that, so Paul has this near high side coming out of Garage Vare, I believe, and he, he rejoins the pack, sort of gets to the outside, but I think Morbidelli maybe wasn't quite aware that there would have been two bikes on the outside at that point, that Paul wouldn't have much uh, much of anywhere to go. And I understand why Franco decided at that point to have a go down the inside. Maybe he felt that was the time. I think he, that's what he said, basically. He felt that was the time he thought Paul would be much slower coming into that corner. But it was as a result, it was three bikes into a pretty tight corner because Paul tipped in, Franco tipped in, Franco had to take to basically nearly cut the corner. There was contact. There was then contact between Paul and, and Valentino. In the end, it compromised Rossi a bit. Talk about that a little bit later. And um, obviously, Frankie went into the gravel and fell very slowly, but clearly not very pleasantly because he's been nursing the, the wounded knee. Yeah, so for me, um, so speaking of Frankie afterwards, that, that's pretty much exactly what he said. He admitted that he made an assumption that Paul wouldn't, be as aggressive in the corner given the huge moment he just had um but but when i say that i think paul should have had a penalty it's almost it's not because of the crash it's because of what happened a few seconds before it um to me if you end up like five meters off the racing line because you've just had a huge moment before you cross back onto the racing line at a lower speed than the guys behind you you look over your shoulder and he didn't he just comes straight across into the middle of the pack again and that could have been like it could have caused catastrophic smash. Um, and there's a bit of history of Paul not looking over his shoulder before rejoining after running wide, you know? I, I still don't understand how Johan Zarco got penalized in Brno last year for Paul doing exactly that and running into him. And then there's the rather heated Miguel Oliveira, Paul Espigaro incident at the Red Bull Ring a couple of weeks later where he did the exact same thing. So it's it's kind of a Paul trait um, that he keeps getting away with. Um but yeah, Morbidelli was kind of, you know, he said that he he assumed because of what had happened that Paul wouldn't be where he was, basically. And he, he took the, the fair share of the blame. Um, he just wasn't as completely unequivocal as Paul was in taking all of the blame. I, I, I'm probably still more on, on, on Paul's side on this than on Frankie. Paul's rejoin did look a bit sketch, I agree. It, it did make me raise an eyebrow, I think, during the, the race even, but... Uh, I don't know. It's still once he'd pulled that off, he was, I think, well within his right to the corner. Is it was a risky move? Maybe it was sort of born out of the frustration that Paul, I think, was running in the top five before he had the high side, and then that was that moment that the race basically got away from him. Um, yeah, I don't know. I I don't think it's a like it's a penalty thing. I think if if there's anybody who should have been penalized for that, it's probably Frankie, and Frankie penalized himself by falling over in the gravel. Brilliant. But but now the the sort of the the casual the, the other casualty of that incident is valentino rossi although for rossi that crash that that whole situation ended up almost an afterthought like it cost him a few positions on the opening lap but the, or was it the opening lap one of the opening laps anyway yeah. and lap. um what rossi 
what Rossi said after the race, what he majored on after the race, is just that he was not comfortable with the bike in the in the conditions after the bike swap. That, like Maverick, he was just he was not feeling it in those conditions, and he thinks Yamaha has a lot of work to do. And that that checks out to me. I don't think that was the major episode of his race because, again, Lequona fell during the the opening laps or whatever, and he ended up passing Rossi in the final laps to claim ninth. So clearly, it was. I think it was just a footnote for his ultimately pretty disappointing race for Rossi. It's funny. We, we've always we've always had this belief that whenever Jorge Lorenzo rode for Yamaha, there was always a thing about Jorge can't ride in mixed conditions. Yeah. Um, but he was always lightning fast in the wet and he was always lightning fast in the dry. And what we're now seeing is that maybe it wasn't actually him because whenever he jumped onto the Ducati, it turned out he was actually quite good in mixed conditions. Uh, but now we're seeing both Rossi and and uh, Vinales struggling in exactly that. Rossi said if it had stayed raining the whole race, he would have been right there. That the problem isn't wet weather; it's you know Jack Miller territory. It's that sort of damp but drying, trying to find the puddles on a wet tire to keep them cool conditions that we saw towards the end of the race. But uh, again, I have to flag this up as I did to Maverick, even though he didn't really seem to particularly agree but <laughs> fabio really made that bike work in those conditions i mean yeah even, even if not counting for the opening laps and counting for the t- like yes jack reeled him in really easy with even despite the double long lap but you sort of expect that from jack miller and after that mm-hmm. f- there were a few laps where fabio was matching jack basically lap for lap you shouldn't be able to do that on this yamaha in the mixed conditions so there's there's something yeah. there for them to look at and he did it. He did it even before the flag as well, because the lap where they all dove into the pits, where it was raining and they were all still in slicks, um, on a sort of a, a, a quickly damping track, Fabio was rapid as yeah. well. He was making some super aggressive overtakes. So it is obvious he's got a ton of feel of that bike, regardless of the conditions. On a subject of Rossi, we will come back to him in much more detail uh, next week. And I say we, I actually mean you guys and Toby will. So ahead of Magello, which of course used to be. Rossi's uh, very much Rossi's patch. Uh, we'll look at what's going on for him this year and try and peer into uh, our crystal balls and see what his future holds. Uh, so, as I say, Toby will be back for that, and normal order will be restored here on the Race MotoGP podcast. Now, it says something about how bad Suzuki's weekend was that it's taken us this long to talk about the reigning champions. Nowhere in qualifying, two crashes for Alex Rins, including one coming out of the pits. Jaya Mir crashing before he got to the pits, then running to his garage to try to get another bike. The only bright spot, I think, if you were trying to put a positive spin on it, was how well Rins charged up the order in the first few laps before the rain hit. But Simon, was this just a case of anything that could go wrong did go wrong for Suzuki? How damaging could this be for Mir's title defense and perhaps most importantly you told us that the suzuki truck drove past you at the roadside uh, not too long ago was it on fire <laughs> so let's start with mir um it's it's kind of easy to forget that the world champion is still a bit of an inexperienced kid sometimes and that, that's exactly what happened yesterday he just completely lost his head a little bit whenever he crashed he forgot that to do a pit stop, you have to go from one bike to another, and he just left the other one behind. Um, you know, it's a lesson that he was so embarrassed sounding last night. Um, it's a lesson that it is going to take him a long time to live down in the garage, knowing that team. Um, I would imagine that they'll be handcuffing him to his bike next weekend whenever he turns up, just just to get the the the, <laughs> the amusement factor of it. Um, yeah, he, he made a mistake. Um, it was his first ever flag to flag race. You know, we haven't had one since 17. He's only been in MotoGP two years. So uh, it's such a stressy, tense, overwhelming set of circumstances that it causes. You, you can you can feel the whole mood changing in the paddock in the morning when you know there's going to be a flag-to-flag race. So you feel like there's going to be... Because it's so, so well, stressful. Quattararo rode into the wrong pit bay, didn't Exactly, he? exactly. And Miller and... and uh, Miller and Bagnaia both sped down pit lane. It it just it makes people do stupid things, and he was one of them. Um, in terms of his title, it it wasn't ideal, but I'm not convinced it means title over. 
Um, we saw last year he made a really poor start to the season and then he pulled it back. And they come into this year knowing that knowing that the first few tracks, not this many, but the first few weren't Suzuki tracks. And they're just, you know, they're eyeing up places like Assen, places like Silverstone, places like Phillip Island. That's where they're going to do the real damage later in the year, much like they did last year. So I, I think that side of the camp will be calm at least if not happy with the weekend on the other side of the garage alex rins is just being alex rins and crashing every time he gets a sniff of a good result um and he is so so fast and he's so so talented but my god is he inconsistent and it just you know he, he complained a few weeks ago that oh whenever the others are talking about title contenders they never mention me it's like, yeah, I wonder why that is, Alex. Maybe it's because every time you get close to the front of a race, you crash. And until he gets rid of that, it just, you know, you, you just can't consider him a title contender, can you? Uh, yeah, I mean, I'd like to be, because, you know, Alex was really, really sad after the race. You could hear it just completely pretty despondent. And he's, you know, he's a clearly, obviously, a very nice guy. So it, it, it sucks to see Absolutely. that. And to be a little bit nice. Those first few laps going from, was it 15th to basically second? That was fantastic. Mm -hmm. Like, do a lot more of that. That was honestly maybe the most impressive thing in the race in a, in a way. But then obviously coming out of the pits on wet tires, he says he snatched the brake at the second part of the Dunlop chicane and that was that. Um, I don't know. The thing is, I think he looks quicker than Mir in most sessions. I think he looks a bit quicker on one lap. I think his race pace is almost always really good. I'm not sure that counts for anything if you keep falling off from the podium, basically. If, uh, you know, ifs and buts, whatever, useless to say, I guess. But if if he finished these, these three races where he was running, uh, he'd be right in the mix of the championship. And the way it is, he's not only not in the mix of the championship, but it's almost certainly over. Uh, it's... On, on to the next one, I guess. The, the one the one big positive for Alex, apart from the fact that he's obviously quick and capable of winning MotoGP races and capable of being a title contender, I think the one big positive for Alex is I, I cannot see Suzuki souring on him because of that, because he's just he's really quick and he's is he's clearly played a big part in making this bike what it is right now. So he'll he'll get he'll get more time with the team. I'm pretty confident of that. But yeah, it's it's rough. It's been a rough run. I'd go as far as to say that I think he's, despite Mir being the reigning world champion, that, that Renz is absolutely quicker than him. Um, he's just so inconsistent. You know, if you if you look at the two races last year that Renz really, really messed up in, he was leading both of them. He crashed out of the lead both times. He gave away 50 points. He'd have been champion. And he'd have had three times the amount of wins as his teammate. And had have been would have been the tied for most wins all season. And yet, through his own inconsistencies, you know, and, and to say that he snatched the brake at the Dunlop chicane exiting on cold, wet tyres, that's a clubman racer mistake. It's not a MotoGP World Champions mistake. And also, how long can you get away with having those excuses and how long can you go on making those mistakes, no matter how fast you are? So probably... That's the issue in many ways, isn't it? We're talking about Mir being inexperienced. Rins probably should have ironed out more of this from his game by now. Yeah, I, I think so. But it's also, it's the 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 Mir and Quartararo problem of modern MotoGP is that it helps us forget that the guys who are their teammates are still just really absurdly young. Alex Rins is really young. Maverick Vinales is still pretty young. It's crazy. They, they're, they still have like a decade of MotoGP in them. But it, it feels like they're elder statesmen, statesmen that like they're, you know, old toys we've given up on because we have new toys in the form of <laughs> Quartaro and Mir. And man, those are great toys. Big fan of those. But <laughs> uh, yeah, I I think that's also partly something that should give Rins a bit more time. He's still, he's not the complete package yet, but that I don't think we can say that he won't get there. Rin's problem to me is that you you can do what he's doing happily and make a career out of it if you're Johan Zarco at Pramac and you win a couple of races here and there. But whenever you're a factory rider and your teammate's the world champion and you're faster than him, it, it's just it doesn't endear you to the factory, does it? So he's 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 not gonna get booted out of MotoGP for it. 
but it might not keep his factory seat for too long. And on that theme with the old toys, if if you which one which one of them is more likely, if either of them are at all, to win you a championship, Vinales or Rins? Actually, I have to say Rins because he is. You know, it's it's the the old adage about it's easier to make a fast racer stop crashing than it is to make a slow racer go fast. And whenever Maverick is slow, he is slow. Whereas Rins is normally fast. He's just inconsistent. Uh, Vinales on a Ducati is my answer. So yeah, Ooh. that's Whoa. Vinales on a Yamaha. I don't think it's happening at this point. I think we've had too much, too much time. Even though he's still really young and still clearly maybe not quite the finished product, but we've had too much time over the same thing over and over again. But Vinales with a change of scenery. I mean, the Maverick who burst onto the scene with Suzuki, the Maverick that we watched be super good in in Moto three and Moto and Moto two. That rider's still in there. I'm sure of it. And I think I think his ceiling might be a bit higher than than Rinza's still, even though Rinza's obviously super fast. So my my shout is Vinales on a different bike, preferably the Suzuki. Yeah, you've actually got me thinking about the perfect solution for uh, Ducati. The perfect solution for both of these guys is to just switch them. Swap. Yeah, that's actually really good. Well, there you have it. Rider market solved for 2022. But let's let's move on to Aprilia, um, because we had the rare sight, unless you're talking about Yamaha early last year of uh, two bikes from the same team breaking down during the race. We, re- we really don't see that very often. We don't see much unreliability in on race day in MotoGP. So Val, what happened to the two Aprilias? Why did they both stop on track? Uh, you know, to, to caveat that a bit, it is sort of a little bit of an Aprilia trademark that we've forgotten a little bit for the past <laughs> year or so because they seem to work a little bit better but yeah if you are if you told me there's going to be two bikes that fail of one manufacturer and you ask me who it was i'd say aprilia 100 i wouldn't i wouldn't even venture a second guess i wouldn't say yamaha wouldn't say ducati i'd, I'd be fairly certain it was aprilia um what happened the, the neither rider would really really say Aleish was just you know he's he's been here before so he's frustrated he said he was frustrated more than ever it was hard to tell from him because normally Aleish maybe is a little bit more evocative. There he just seemed kind of tired that this whole Le Mans weekend of trials and tribulations and awful weather and awful track conditions led to just the bike telling him to go eat lead basically or whatever. Uh, but yeah, he wouldn't say what the problem was. He wouldn't. He wasn't sure if it was the same as what happened to Savadori. They looked different because Savadori's was just you know smoke. Uh, Savadori. Well, that one blew up, didn't it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Savadori was a little bit upset, but I think his basically the the way that his weekend will go down in the history books is that amazing Q1 lap and just generally the fact that he was really good in the wet all weekend. Uh, but it 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 makes me worried. It makes me a little bit worried because you know Aleish guaranteed us a podium this year, and I say guaranteed us like we're his shareholders or something. We want a podium. Like I put <laughs> a thousand bucks on it, which I have not, but he's guaranteed himself a podium in that sense. And when it comes to clutch time, still the bike just either isn't quite there or just stops working. And ultimately you can have however many opportunities you want, but if that keeps happening, that eh, might, you know, it might not, that target might not come this year. So I'd, I'd be pretty, pretty frustrated if I was him. And I'm frustrated on behalf of Aprilia because that's a really nice bike there. And it'd be nice if it, reliably lasted the race distance which it seemed like it was starting to and now two bikes in the same race not great I, I, i'm going to give them a little bit more benefit of the doubt than val has uh, <laughs> simply because simply because we're used to seeing aprilia's do things like that but for the past sort of two years they haven't um and I, i'm really hoping that's just a blip and not a return to normality for them and that you know things are a little little bit more yeah, normal now again after this weekend, um, and they're they're you know they're they're happy to be going to Mugello somewhere that they've spent so much time testing recently. It's a home race. It's yeah, it's somewhere that Salvadori knows really well, um, and I think they'll very very quickly try to bury what has happened, put it behind them, onwards and upwards. Well, let's talk about Aprilia and their test program because we know Andrea Davizioso has been riding the bike, and you guys heard from him last week about how that's going. So, Simon, what's the latest on that relationship? Are we any closer to seeing a Dovey wildcard this year? No. 
Um, from from what I can understand, reading between the lines, there will be test number three, uh, probably at Mizano, um, which means third different circuit for him. Um, basically, the problem is they went to Mugello and it rained. Uh, they got very, very little track time. I was talking to someone who was there and he says the, the first day at lunchtime, they were standing at the end of the start finish straight. Dovey went out in wets to see what it was like. And the minute he came onto the start finish street, you could hear the bike going, whoa, 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 as the traction control just started cutting power because it was aquaplaning. So yeah, just not the conditions to to really gauge much from. So they're going to have a third go at it. I've heard from some people that he's not massively enamored with the project, that he's not definitely not as happy as Aprilia say, are letting it sound like he is, that he's he's not there but it says a lot that he is having a third test it proves that there's something to it but then of course there's obviously the fact that Dovi is trying to say look I'm still riding a MotoGP bike for all the people looking to sign a MotoGP rider for next year and knowing that he's available um, I'm, I'm still convinced the wild card will only happen if there's a contract for 2022 so yeah I think it's yet more wait and see until this next test. I'm, you know, I'm still. I'm, my thinking is, and what I'm still convinced, and maybe it's even a little bit informed by what what, what Aleish was saying this weekend, is that I'm not sure getting Dovi makes or breaks their 22. And in fact, I think maybe sort of the way Aleish was talking about it, they're clearly really considering a, a, a really good rookie for 2022 too. Now the name Aleish put forward, and I think we'll, we'll talk about this more in the next podcast because it makes a bit of sense for the silly season stuff. But the name Aleish put forward is Raul Fernandez. If there's any chance of getting Raul Fernandez uh, on the bike, if Raul Fernandez can genuinely be convinced onto that factory RSGP, then I think honestly forget Dovi's number just because Dovi's like, what, 13 years older. Go with Raul Fernandez, make your luck there. That's, that's sort of my feeling. Especially if Dobby isn't completely sold, because you need you need somebody who'll really, really be properly enthusiastic about that project. Because there's going to be there's still going to be a lot of tribulations to come. Uh, Sixteen years older. Yeah, I can't count. So you know, at the end of the day, Dobby will be thirty six next season. Yeah, it's all well and good bringing him in as the superstar, but it's only going to be for a short period of time. Yeah, everyone is looking at what's happening with Valentino. You know, his age is paying a factor in the fact that he's slower. And Dovi's closer to Valentino than he is to any other rider in the group. And he's had a competitive break. Ready to come back. He's had a competitive break. Exactly. 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 And Ducati have proven this year the benefits in investing in a bit of young talent and, and really stacking the field for yourself. Yeah. Because, you know, they've got two riders tearing it up in the factory team that are both Ducati products, essentially. Yeah. It's working. Let's finish with what I think was an interesting topic of debate over the weekend about Le Mans' position on the MotoGP calendar. By that, I mean where it falls on the calendar, not if it should be on there at all. But Simon, after another weekend of treacherous conditions, there were suggestions from many of the riders that the race needs to move to later in the year. Do you think they have a point that by placing it where it currently is in the calendar, we're just asking for trouble? Uh, I'd say they were stronger than suggestions. <laughs> uh, Aleish said, do they think we're all crazy? Does someone think it's a joke watching us crash? Because we sure don't. Um, yeah, Le Mans is just... The problem is, it's such a good track. It's proper old school. It's got big cambers. It's got proper scary corners like Turn 1. But everybody wants to go into Turn 1 flat out, on the limit, knowing that there's enough track temperature that the tire isn't just going to decide to let go. Um, and we just don't get that in May. You know, it is really quite far north. It's the furthest north we go until we get to summer, if that makes sense. Because the I think the only other two tracks that are further north are Silverstone and Assen. And both of them are, you know, one's in June, one's in August. And it's, you know, it's it's on the Atlantic coast and it gets all sorts of weather really quickly and it's cold and it's horrible and everybody hates going there. Whereas if it was in June, everybody would love going there. So yeah, it's a small change to make really for a huge benefit. Um, I was sitting next to a friend in the media center at the weekend who is from Barcelona 
and was sending pictures to his girlfriend of the Le Mans weather and getting back pictures of how beautiful it was on the beach in Barcelona. So, you know, why don't we go to Catalonia and Mugello first? There's so much leeway in the calendar to make it happen. And uh, I, the benefits would massively uh, overrate any positive negatives. The only possible negative, really, of which is fitting it in around the 24-hour race in June. What really struck me about this weekend a bit, and I'm, I'm not saying removing that particular corner would make a difference and instantly like change the race or whatever, but the fact there was a designated crash corner, the Dunlop chicane, everybody was falling there, everybody was terrified going in there and openly spoke about how you just sort of hold your breath through there, you try to be real, real careful, and sometimes it just lets go anyway. It's just, it was really really a, a weird feeling, very unmodern MotoGP, that there's just a corner where you you know, you pray for your life, basically. And I don't know how many people fell at the Dunlop chicane over the three days, but it was a lot. I can tell you that much. It was over and over and over and over again. It was all very, very similar crashes. They tip in. There's like basically no warning and the bike just falls and they hit the ground pretty hard. It's really impressive to me that nobody broke their bones there because I'm not sure where the Moto2 guy who required surgery, I'm not sure where he fell, Yari Montella, but I don't, think, I don't think it was turn. I don't think it was there. I think the only the only fall, the only injury we had there was uh, ah, Yuki Kuni Moto Three yeah, rider okay. broke a collarbone. I think that's the only broken bone there, which is says a lot about airbags and suits. Yeah, but it's it's not it's not sustainable. You can't just have a, a, a crash corner there. So clearly something needs to be done. Something needs to change. Maybe talk to meteorologists or whatever. Maybe talk to the designers because Rossi said it wasn't just about. So there was a few reasons. It's not just about the low temp. It's also the camber that the, was it the Le Mans 24 hours cars create there. It was the, yeah. it's the corner just a bit mean. And obviously it's a few right-handers coming into a left-hander. So you don't have the, the temperature coming into that. But whatever, whatever it is, they really need to have a think about that one. Cause I don't want to, I don't want to watch next year how another 40 times somebody hits the deck there. Just not, not a fun thing to watch. And I'm, I, I don't want those guys to get hurt. It's a fair point. I mean, I've covered enough Le Mans 24-hour car races in the middle of June where sometimes I've got sunburnt and sometimes I've got soaking wet. and I am freezing cold and wearing several layers. So, I, yeah, I've covered races at that track at various times of year. And I'd say you can get that weather at any time. But maybe, as Simon suggests, you can at least change the odds slightly, even if you can't guarantee you're going to get nice weather. Yeah, that was basically that was basically Jack Miller's argument. That's what Jack said. That like Phillip Island, yeah, you can switch it to a different part of the year. Maybe it'll help a little bit, but you'll still get absurd temperatures at some point. Yeah, but then conversely, uh, Alicia Spagaro's argument was that the issue isn't the rain; that they'll happily race in the rain if it's warm enough for the tires to work. But yeah. it's the combination of rain and temperature. So at least, even if you go a few months later and it's still torrential rain. You know, we race every year in Sepang in torrential rain, but it's 40 degrees air temperature, so it's fine. You can't tell if you're drenched in rain or sweat. Yeah, exactly. It's like an outdoor shower. <laughs> it's for, you know. Right, we'll leave it there for the 2021 French Grand Prix. Thank you to Simon and Val for your insight, as always. Those two will be back next time when Toby Moody returns to talk all things Valentino Rossi ahead of the Italian Grand Prix, where Ducati heads to home territory with three riders all sat ominously within 16 points of championship leader Fabio Cotteraro.